Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Legend Gold Corp. is a gold exploration company with flagship projects in Mali, West Africa. With successful drilling programs and new discoveries this year, we are in an excellent position to advance our two gold deposits. Shareholder value is anchored at Chukamala by a 43-101 compliant resource of approximately 600,000 ounces of gold. The recent addition of the Munina project offers the potential for a third gold strike. Legend Gold trades under the symbol LGN on the TSX Venture Exchange. Please go to our website at www. Legendgold.com. Merrick's Gold, with over 800 square kilometers of contiguous permits in West Mali, Africa. Merrick's and exploration partner IM Gold have spent $16 million on the advanced stage Surabaya Gold Project in Mali. 40,000 meters of diamond and reverse circulation drilling currently underway to expand Merrick's indicated resource and to determine the true size of the Surabaya Gold deposit. Exploration also continues on the huge gold anomaly at Zone Bambadinka, as well as the major gold system on the Babara and Kofia permits. Romeo's Gold offers unprecedented opportunities in the final frontier of British Columbia's Golden Triangle, a copper-gold-rich region with improving infrastructure. Romeo's properties are located in the vicinity of multi-billion dollar deposits. With its $6 million plus drilling program underway, Romeo's Gold is focused on developing world-class mineral resources in a major upcoming mining district. Rypatch Gold Corp. is an exploration company seeking to build a sizable inventory of gold and silver resource assets in mining-friendly Nevada, the world's fourth richest gold region. This well-funded company now has 1.2 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the measured and indicated category, plus 2.7 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the inferred category, with ongoing drilling to achieve a goal of 10 million ounces of gold. For more info on RPM, please visit our website at www www.rypatchgold.com We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down Try not to try too hard, it's just a lovely ride You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Again, I want to thank you for listening to this show, making this the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. Of course, I want to thank our sponsors for the second hour of today's show for making this show economically viable. They are Merrick's Gold, Legend Gold, and Rypatch Gold Corp. Well, back to uh, to Jeff and Carmen. Jeff, uh, in the first three installments of your series uh, on the rape um, of Europe, as uh, let's see, the title was "The Economic Rape of Europe," nearly complete. 
Uh, you documented how the U.S. terrorism, uh, to use your term, drove up Eurozone interest rates and thus uh, their interest rates, uh, their expenses exponentially. But can uh, can you uh, let's get a little more specifically into how this was how this was uh, this process uh, occurred? How did we get Europe indebted and impoverished? How how did that happen? Well, you know, referring back to the creation of the derivatives market, you know, that's really where things began. They created all of these exotic derivatives, these financial instruments, and then immediately went on this major media blitz, not just in Europe, but of course, you know, all over the world. And the message they were preaching was the same. If you allow us to incorporate these derivatives into your own financial markets, we can magically and permanently reduce the costs of borrowing money, which will allow all of you governments to borrow a lot more than you ever dreamed possible because you'll be able to pay a lower rate of interest on it. Mm. Mm. And, you know, as I wrote in my own uh, piece there, I mean, essentially what they were saying was that they had come up with the economic equivalent of a perpetual motion machine. You know, it's mm-hmm. something that was totally preposterous on its very surface because it was never arithmetically possible. And yet, you know, this is the, the, the sales pitch that was being put through to these European nations and, and readily accepted. Mm-hmm. And once they had believed that, then, of course, you know, step two was to start incorporating these derivatives into these debt markets. And then, of course, just to get massive amounts of debt piled on top of each other. Mm-hmm. And then the next stage, of course, was to actually, uh, you know, unleash some of these scams. And, you know, the first one was the interest rate swap scam, which is basically where Wall Street got all of these institutions and governments to place bets against the bankers themselves on the direction interest rates were going to go. And, you know, I mean, I can't imagine a more reckless activity than to, you know, be betting against multinational bankers on interest rates. But, I mean, Mm -hmm. this was done to the tune of trillions of dollars all over the Western world and even in some of the Asian economies. And then, of course, uh, the bet was, you know, all the bankers were on one side of the bet saying that interest rates were going to be going lower and all of their uh, chumps were convinced that they would be, you know, winning the bet by betting interest rates were going higher. Mm-hmm. And then by, you know, some remarkable coincidence, after all these bets had been placed, all of a sudden interest rates crashed to their lowest level in history. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's this massive windfall for the Wall Street banksters with mm-hmm. their interest rate swaps. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, by now, the credit default swaps have already been incorporated in these debt markets as well. And what the credit default swaps were, were essentially pretend insurance. Mm-hmm. They were also bets. They were bets against these nations defaulting, with the idea being that simply placing these bets would somehow reduce the risk of default itself. You know, again, I mean, this is something that it's, it's totally ridiculous. And if these governments ever properly understood these derivatives, they, they you know, obviously wouldn't have ever... Uh, been suckered into this particular mm-hmm. scam, but you know they did. They got themselves buried deep with these credit default swaps, and then at that point it becomes a simple matter of, of you know Wall Street manipulation. They you know turn the propaganda machine loose. You know all get all the chicken littles out there saying, oh you know the sky is falling. You know the European economies are going to collapse. You know these are these debt markets are so risky, quote unquote. And then at the same time, uh, there's this massive shorting on the credit default swaps driving up the cost of that insurance. And because the credit default swap market had swelled to somewhere in the neighborhood of $60 trillion in size, the insurance on the debts became a bigger market than the debts themselves. Mm -hmm. So, of course, by driving the credit default swap markets upward in terms of the higher risk insurance on these these debts, that 
increased, directly increased the risk on the debts themselves. And, of course, the market response to that is for interest rates to go higher. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, as the interest rates go higher, with these governments that were already bordering on insolvency, it becomes <clears throat> suddenly more obvious that they're, they're even more insolvent because of the higher borrowing costs associated with the higher interest rates. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes a self-fueling cycle. Where every time the interest rate goes higher, it makes the economy less solvent, increases the risk, pushes the interest rates higher, and of course that's you know simply primed with more uh, of the propaganda from the U.S. propaganda machine and more shorting in the credit default swap markets, and ultimately it becomes a pretty simple exercise in manipulation. Mm -hmm. So what we're seeing are the weaker European economies go first, and is this something that you think will continue to? feed on itself and we're certainly seeing you know more names being mentioned it started out with greece and ireland and portugal and now then last year we heard about spain and now shockingly about italy and uh even i hear once in a while france mentioned as a possible so you see the parasites i mean the whole economic system because of this enormous indebtedness debt is growing much more rapidly than income is growing isn't it for sure, but but see, here's another thing that I think is something of a misconception in our economies. Uh, if you, you know, take all of these economies and you convert them into real dollar numbers instead of these, you know, inflation pumped up nominal numbers that we're using, mm -hmm. um, and look at, at spending and look at revenues, what you're going to see is that spending has in fact been relatively flat. Mm -hmm. You know, there's been some increases for some governments, but generally we're seeing a fairly flat curve. You look at revenues, and it's a totally different story. Revenues have fallen off a cliff. Mm. And, and this is the story that's being hidden from the media, the, the total collapse in government revenues. And there are two aspects to this. Uh, you know, there's the general hollowing out of our economies where the middle class has been devastated. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, structural unemployment is rising, and so there's simply a lot fewer people paying taxes. Mm -hmm. And at the other extreme, <clears throat> you know, the very wealthy people who have seen their, their levels of wealth explode at a rate, excuse me, never before seen in history, are also seeing their taxes at the lowest rates in history. So you've got, you know, the, the poor and the middle class who basically have nothing left to be, you know, squeezed out of them. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. the 20% up top who have more than ever before, but are being taxed at a lower rate than ever before. Mm -hmm. And of course, to put those two things together in the combination is an utter collapse in revenues. Mm -hmm. And so the question becomes, how do you solve a revenue crisis by spending cuts? It sounds to me like this is a recipe for deflation. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, here again, um, I think the problem that a lot of people run into when they talk about a deflation scenario is that they make the mistake of comparing it to past economic episodes. Mm -hmm. And, of course, there is no past episode that's remotely uh, comparable because, you know, as you were mentioning yourself, you know, in previous economic times, uh, there was no uh, solvency issues with our economies. Mm -hmm. You know, there may have been uh, periods of high unemployment. There may have been mm -hmm. short periods of large deficits. But there was never a time in our previous histories where our economies were literally teetering on the verge of bankruptcy. Well, not in the U.S. and Canada and the, the major Western countries, at least in recent uh, centuries. Yeah. I mean, there certainly were some minor countries like Haiti, I remember. Um, when I was a banker, sitting around a table with uh, the banksters who were trying to provide a bailout for Haiti. This goes back in the 1970s, I guess, probably. Um, but you're right. I mean, that, so, so, what is, so what are you saying? Because what I'm seeing is this enormous amount of growth in debt. Uh, 
and I'm, the masses are being hollowed, the middle class being hollowed out, as you say. The top 20% is, um, as, as we've heard um, Dave, uh, Mr. Davidowitz talk about on our show, getting wealthier and the bottom 80% are getting poorer. Where does the demand come from? Where does the spending come from to drive prices to the moon? I mean, we're seeing more inflation than the government admits. I believe that without any doubt in my mind. Um, so how does this thing come out? I mean, this is a question we always ask on this show. Do you see do you see us heading into some sort of a hyperinflation, or do you see a, a deflationary bust? You know, here I'll defer to, to John Williams of Shadow Stats because I mm-hmm. think he was the person who really, you know, hit this on the head first when he started writing about a hyperinflationary depression mm-hmm. going back nearly a decade ago. Yeah. And, you know, I think that this is basically the inevitable scenario that the worst of the Western economies are headed for. Uh, basically, if they allow any deflation, any serious deflation to take effect, because of the solvency issues, we're just going to see complete implosion like we saw in the Soviet Union. You know, just boom, you know, in a matter of weeks, collapse. Because there's too much leverage, there's too much debt. If those debts start defaulting, it's going to mushroom out of control very quickly. Mm-hmm. But, of course, when that starts to happen, there, there's absolutely no choice for the governments but to crank up the printing presses even faster. So in any sort of default deflationary collapse, it's also going to lead to hyperinflation because the printing press is the only way to try to bail out of that crisis. But so far, but if I might just uh, interrupt, so far the bailouts have gone to the rich, those with the lowest propensity to consume and those with the lowest, as you're saying, paying less taxes. Do you see uh, a possibility, and I think John Williams probably does, so John argues the inflation side not so much from uh, income distribution to the masses as he does just the dollar collapse. So are you are you in the school that the dollar are you you're you're believing that the dollar will ultimately collapse and that will be the stimulus for that will be what sets in motion um, the hyperinflation? Yes, and, and I, I agree with Williams and, and the other you know sort of school that are saying that you know inflation is not going to be a demand driven. Uh, phenomenon mm-hmm. in any respect. Mm-hmm. This is mm-hmm. totally a currency dilution phenomenon, mm-hmm. and and of course, and that's where you get a lot of misinformation from the mainstream media. Is they're saying, well, you know, how can there be hyperinflation or even high inflation when there's not mm-hmm. enough demand to generate? Yeah, right. You know, right. overlooking the, the crucial dynamic. Right. Well, just to uh, just along those lines, because we've had people on this show that are both on, on both sides of the. Uh, deflation inflation argument and Robert Prechter for one on the deflation side Ian Gordon on the deflation side Bob Hoy from your fair town of Vancouver uh, those are people and, and some of those people argue that the senior currency always uh, gains uh, tends to gain um, in a gain in, in a deflation or in a credit bust but let's leave that one go because I, I think we're not going to come to any any conclusion today. I, I enjoy both sides of the argument. I think I think people need to be cognizant of it. And probably the best answer is one that uh, one of my guests, when I raised the question, inflation or deflation, he said yes, <laughs> meaning yes, both. And that's what we're having now is is a big yes. We're having housing deflation, no doubt, still. We're having deflation in the financial markets. We're seeing the credit markets implode, I think. We're seeing it sovereign debt. So the I think without a doubt in my mind we are going to see a deleveraging or would you disagree that uh that that the, the sort of the nuclear bomb has gone off in the financial markets and uh I don't know Jeff do you think they can kick start this thing with more derivatives and pile debt on top of debt my thinking is 
the debt is already uh, that we are insolvent and the debt is going to have to be wiped off the books one way or another either through a deflationary depression or a hyperinflationary depression before we can ever get on to something that is uh, that has a chance of growing again do you agree with my, that? My personal belief here is that the choice has already been made. The, the, the choice that they would prefer to, to to follow through on is the slow path toward hyperinflation. The problem, of course, is in trying to delay that hyperinflation as long as possible, they're taking an enormous risk of a miscalculation mm-hmm. and then plunging into that deflationary collapse inadvertently. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's where, you know, there's, there's of course, room for valid opinions on both sides. Sure. Because regardless of what they intend, they could end up with yeah. the exact opposite. Right. Well, I, that's a good point. That's a very good point. Um, in, in part... Uh, so, so in part four of your essay, you say that the new mantra of these oligarchs uh, became no more Iceland's. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, you know, Iceland, of course, was a, a very big part of this whole, uh, you know, banker-led uh, boom in financial markets. And, you know, yeah. The uh, Icelandic banks became somewhere around, uh, what was it, two-thirds or three-quarters of the entire Iceland economy, you know, which was obviously in indications of, of enormous bubbles and, uh, you know, uh, imbalance. And then, of course, when the crash of 2008 occurred and there was this massive meltdown and then the subsequent bailouts, they, you know, started to do those bailouts as well. But then when it came time to, you know, put sort of the icing on the cake in terms of of the banker's interests and to lock in these loss guarantees, these blank checks for the bankers, which would have indemnified them uh, against all of their own mistakes, uh, coming out of the pockets of the Icelandic people, Iceland's government simply stood up to them and said, no, we're, we're not going to sign these loss guarantees. Do to us what you want. You know, we'll absorb the consequences and then move on. And that's what they did. And, of course, they were, you know, punished. They were cut off of debt markets. And then there was a very difficult period of, of deflation and retrenching in the Icelandic economy. And now, you know, all indications that I've read myself is that this is an economy which is now healing, mm-hmm. which is not being burdened down with these future massive loss guarantees, which they're going to have to indemnify these banks for, and thus has a real chance of emerging from this crisis and recovering and resuming, you know, and being a healthy economy again, mm-hmm. whereas... You know, of course, that's obviously what the bankers don't want to see happen with any of these other Western European economies, and so they're taking deliberate steps to make sure that doesn't happen. Uh, can you clarify what you mean by loss guarantees? Is that where the governments agree to guarantee the banks uh, that there won't be losses, and do they use, um, you know, the country's property to, to make such guarantees? Well, we're, we're seeing a mixture of these. You know, of course, in, in, the, in the crash of 2008 in the U.S., it was mostly guarantees for the banks because at that point there weren't, you know, uh, state debts or sovereign debts that needed to be guaranteed. Yeah. But right now what we're seeing in the European uh, debt crisis is that they're now attaching these loss guarantees on Greek bonds. Mm-hmm. And so what essentially is being done is they're trying to uh, get the people in the more prosperous European economies to, you know, sign their names to blank checks to indemnify these bondholders in Greek bonds when it's becoming increasingly obvious that it, there's no possible way these debts can ever be repaid. And so essentially these loss guarantees are a way for these, you know, banksters and, you know, I call bond parasites to salvage these, you know, hopelessly insolvent positions by getting somebody else to indemnify them, just as Wall Street... Socializing the losses. Socializing the losses as happened with the Federal Reserve in the U.S. during the, in the housing crisis, the housing... Yeah. Socializing the losses for the benefit of who? The bankers, then, I guess. The banks. 
Well, and, and the the um, you know personal oligarchs who stand behind them. You know, behind the banks, right? Yeah, something I like to mention to people is, you know, we look at the sovereign governments around the world, and they're net debtors to the you know tune of tens of trillions of dollars. Mm-hmm. You know, who's holding those IOUs? Mm-hmm. You know, somebody is sitting sitting there, you know, with tens of trillions of dollars in in their favor, you know, in some bank bank books, and it's not sovereign governments. You know, it's not the poor and the middle class. Uh, so that's you know where I come up with my my term bond parasites because you know there are these shadowy, incredibly wealthy figures, you know sitting here with these massive IOUs in their favor from Western governments. So we're talking about large, probably family holders of of uh, people uh, families by the way that are out of sight. Um, you don't hear much about the Rothschilds anymore. We've had uh, Daniel Estelin talking about the Venetian black nobility, and he named an individual who is worth more than a trillion dollars personally. I guess these are the people you're talking about, the people, the royalty of Europe perhaps that we hear that are attendees of the Bilderberg conferences every year. Is that yeah. these the By kind of people? By elimination, it seems that that basically has to be the answer because, mm-hmm. you know, like I say, somebody's holding this wealth and there's no other suspects. And so what we as taxpayers are being asked to do is to guarantee to those lords and the royalty that we will pay them back. And doesn't that mean that we're returning to serfdom? Exactly. Because this is nothing but a massive wealth transfer from those on the bottom to those on top. Right. Um, So I would gather that you would believe that these countries would be better off if they did what Iceland did. The countries themselves would be better off. Just walk away. And it's, that raises an interesting uh, comment that uh, I think maybe it's more of a comment, a proposal that Ron Paul has made to uh, in the uh, in the House. He suggested that that the United States uh, government should just refuse to pay back. I think it's 1.7 trillion or whatever it owes to the Federal Reserve, and just realize that we essentially owe it to ourselves. The Federal Reserve created that money out of nothing, you know, and then provided it to. Uh, to bail out or whatever, and so we were supposed to pay the Fed back. What Ron is saying, just you know, just stiff them. We don't have to pay them back because it's supposed to be to ourselves. Obviously, the bankers will fight that tooth and nail. Well, but you know, I, I look at that proposal and I, I say to myself, this is it, it's not practical because it's too dangerous to the bankers. Because you know, understand the whole basis of this fractional reserve Ponzi scheme mm-hmm. that the bankers convinced us that our fiat currencies did have value, but it wasn't the value, uh, like the intrinsic value of precious metals, you know, mm-hmm. money, but it was the uh, value by obligation, the fact that all of our currencies are created by, uh, you know, incorporating new debt. And so here's the thing with Ron Paul's proposal. Essentially what it's saying is, you know, this is all just a big scam. You know, this, these transactions between the Federal Reserve and the U.S. government, this is all just to get the economy, you know, moving along. You know, these debts, you know, they're, they're real shams, and, and, you know, so is the money. Mm-hmm. Well, you can't say that, you know, this 20% of, of, of the U.S. debts and U.S. currency created is a sham, but then claim that the other 80% are all valid loans and valid currency. Mm-hmm. You know, either it's all sham, it's all worthless paper, or it's all genuine and legitimate. And I don't think there's any way you can simply, you know, lop off a chunk of it and say, okay, we're going to call that part a sham, and then the system still survives somehow. Mm-hmm. So not a practical idea, not, not something that would work very well in your view. That's my perspective, but, you know, mm-hmm. of course, I could be wrong. Well... Uh, it's uh, thank you for that. I, I appreciate it. Uh, certainly, I know uh, Jeff Dice, who 
is a frequent uh, commentator on this show. He's Ron Paul's chief of staff, and uh, I, I'll run that by him and and see what his comments are. Uh, Carmen, um, anything you would like to ask, Jeff? Sure, absolutely. Uh, Jeff, um, last week uh, um, I read the news that the Swiss Central Bank um, cut the interest rates to weaken uh, the Swiss franc. Now, that um, actually had happened, I think, the day after the franc uh, reached um, its highest levels, I guess, against the euro for the last two years or so. And um, apparently they say that the Swiss National Bank said it will increase the supply of the currency to money markets, and the action was the result of the recent currency strength record that threatened um, the national economic recovery. My dilemma is in, in figuring out why are the Swiss debasing their currency and why would a um, strong franc, um, Swiss franc, uh, threaten the national economic recovery? And was there really in Switzerland um, uh, an undergoing uh, economic recovery so that they justify, okay, we're going to lower, you know, the debase the franc, and this is the reason for which we're doing it? Well, you know, I think it's a fascinating story because, you know, part of it is obviously fiction and, and, you know, the real motivation is being hidden. You know, the idea that a rising currency is is going to cripple an economy is just, you know, patently ludicrous. Obviously, it can have an impact on exporters, but, I mean, that's not, you know, our entire economies. You know, even export-driven economies, you know, maybe 50% of their GDP, well, not even that, less than that is export-driven. So, you know, our economies are primarily domestic engines. And so, you know, the idea that a rise in currency automatically means destruction is ridiculous. And, of course, the obvious example would be to look at the U.S. when it had, you know, its peak of its strong dollar policy. And, you know, we weren't seeing any signs of the U.S. being weakened by that dollar when it was a strong currency. Uh, on the other hand, the real dynamic here is that, you know, as we all know, these currencies, all of the fiat currencies are being diluted at, at the fastest rate in history. So how do you hide this rapid dilution from all the populations? You have all the currencies collapse at a similar rate. As long as they keep the relative exchange rates between these various paper currencies, you know, in the same general, you know, ballpark, then the total collapse of all of them will be hidden for the maximum length of time. And so you get this farce about these, uh, you know, governments claiming that they need to weaken their currencies because they're, they're, they're too strong. And of course, there aren't any strong currencies. You know, they're all collapsing. Uh, just some are collapsing slightly slower than the others. Yeah, it's interesting. What you say, Jeff, is that, uh, you know, it's the relative movement of these uh, fiat currencies one to another, but the anchor, of course, is gold, and we're seeing gold here transcend, uh, move up, even upwards towards $1,700 here as we're, as we're speaking uh, in the 1600s now. Uh, very, very strong over the last number of days, and uh, it seems to me, so where do we come out on this thing? And do you think, uh, we've only got a couple of minutes left to go, Unfortunately, we're going to have to have you back, Jeff, and, and Carmen as well sometime to, to finish this discussion. I mean, I, we'll never finish it probably, but, but we're, uh, gold is the anchor, obviously. Um, do you think there is a, I'll just ask this question and we're going to have to uh, sign off for today, but do you think, Jeff, there is a chance, uh, that we will be going back onto some sort of, uh, uh, global monetary gold back system? 
I think it has to happen. I think, you know, eventually when the economic collapse gets severe enough, you know, our people will demand it and they'll get it one way or another, even if it means replacing our current governments. But, you know, where I disagree with some commentators is I don't think there's any way to smoothly move there from where we are now. I think there has to be some major default event first to purge most of this massive, you know, unrepayable debts that have piled up. Mm -hmm. And then only after that massive default event occurs, will it actually be feasible to properly back these economies with precious metals. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, that's very I wonder, interesting. I wonder for how long how this, uh, this, uh, this Ponzi scheme is going to last, because obviously, you know, they're not going to, to, to say, okay, we're going to go ahead and, and and allow uh, these losses. They're going to continue to, be, to debase currency. They're going to continue to bail out banks, financial institutions, the too big to fail corporations. So how long? I mean, is this sustainable for how long? I mean, I heard talk, uh, some talks about per perpetual, I guess, uh, uh, um, perpetual uh, QEs. Is there such a thing that we could really actually go unharmed through a perpetual uh, quantitative um, easing? Well, you know, let, let me just mention this is a, a very good question, Carmen, where unfortunately we're out of time. It seems to me that's probably one, one question that none of us will be able to answer. We could certainly speculate on it. What I'm going to suggest, though, uh, as we sign off on this, uh, on this segment, because we're just running out of time, is that, is that it seems to me we're coming to an end. I, I see this thing... Um, I see the pathology growing exponentially here, and that uh, the, the 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 talk of of an end game, I think, is very near. And I wouldn't think we've got more than a couple of couple of years to go yet before something very dramatic happens. Uh, let me just ask you that, Jeff, and then we're going to have to say goodbye. What do you think? Well, you know, again, referring to John Williams, uh, he was uh, saying that he thought hyperinflation could hit the U.S. as soon as last year. And, you know, I don't know anybody who spends more time crunching the numbers than he does, so I take that opinion very seriously. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. John's time frame is, is like now. Uh, and, and one thing we do know about hyperinflation, when it takes place, it takes place very, very rapidly. It becomes like a hockey stick in terms of the CPI. The prices rise very dramatically. Well, on that not such happy note, I guess we've got to uh, say goodbye uh, to Jeff and Carmen for this week, but we uh, hopefully will pick up on this. Uh, Jeff, I had umpteen more questions to ask you. There wasn't enough time, uh, but some other time, hopefully we'll have you on sometime soon. Carmen, likewise, folks, don't go away because I'm going to be right back with Chen Lin. Chen will have some more ideas about, well, we're going to talk about making money with Chen Lin, so don't go away. I'll be right back. Legend Gold Corp. is a gold exploration company with flagship projects in Mali, West Africa. With successful drilling programs and new discoveries this year, we are in an excellent position to advance our two gold deposits. Shareholder value is anchored at Chukamala by a 43-101 compliant resource of approximately 600,000 ounces of gold. The recent addition of the Munina project offers the potential for a third gold strike. Legend Gold trades under the symbol LGN on the TSX Venture Exchange. Please go to our website at www dot legendgold dot com
Merrick's Gold, with over 800 square kilometers of contiguous permits in West Mali, Africa. Merrick's and exploration partner IM Gold have spent $16 million on the advanced stage Surabaya Gold Project in Mali. 40,000 meters of diamond and reverse circulation drilling currently underway to expand Merrick's indicated resource and to determine the true size of the Surabaya Gold deposit. Exploration also continues on the huge gold anomaly at Zone Bambadinka, as well as the major gold system on the Babara and Kofia permits. Romeo's Gold offers unprecedented opportunities in the final frontier of British Columbia's Golden Triangle, a copper-gold-rich region with improving infrastructure. Romeo's properties are located in the vicinity of multi-billion dollar deposits. With its $6 million plus drilling program underway, Romeo's Gold is focused on developing world-class mineral resources in a major upcoming mining district. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a lovely ride. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Uh, I want to uh, just tell you that uh, Chen Lin is not with me, as I had announced in the previous segment. Uh, he actually was not able to be here, but we do have Ted Ohashi uh, here. Uh, I'm in Vancouver speaking to you now, and Ted Ohashi is uh, an office across the hall from me. But in any event, uh, we're going to hear from Ted in just a second. Uh, I do want to comment a little bit about the markets uh, today, the volatile markets in the last few days. Uh, before I get to that, though, I should mention that I failed to uh, thank our two sponsors uh, for the second hour. Uh, two of our three sponsors, actually, have failed to thank Romeo's Gold and American uh, Manganese, two uh, wonderful companies that I follow uh, in my own newsletter, and um, they are also sponsors to this show. Well, the markets are certainly, I find them, downright frightening. It's just the volatility is enormous. We saw a Dow loss of 515 points last week um, and then 634 points yesterday. Today, the Dow was all over the place. Uh, it was initially up big, and then it went down, I think, around 300 points and actually finished up 429 points on the day. The S&P uh, was up even bigger in percentage terms, up 4.74%. NASDAQ up 5.29%. But what is really shining, what is really doing extremely well through all of, this, all of these tumultuous markets, gold has risen and closed, uh, well, closed. It's in the last price uh, that I saw on the cash markets is $1,735. Meantime, we're seeing copper, silver, oil, all the sort of industrial items in the commodity, uh, in the commodity mix that uh, are required when times are good are really getting hammered really hard along with the stocks. But that's exactly what I would expect when the world uh, heads into a massive credit implosion. Gold goes up as the world looks for a safe and honest monetary store of value. And this is really consistent with Bob Hoy's work 
Bob's been on our show, and I've got to get him back sometime soon to comment on where we are now in this historical event of major credit contraction. And uh, Hoy reckons that this is the sixth largest major, uh, the sixth major credit contraction uh, in the last 300 years. Um, there is nothing that Bernanke and Obama can do to fix this thing. They're going to try to make believe they can, but nature must run its course. Gold rises relative to everything else when we go into these major credit contractions, and that serves the purpose of energizing the gold mining industry as profit margins surge. Ever since the first leg down in this contraction, which I, I think really was the Lehman Brother event, the Lehman Brothers decline, which really catapulted us into a, a downward spiral, uh, what an ounce of gold will buy has risen dramatically. Uh, in July of 2008, one ounce of gold would have purchased only 17% of the Rogers Raw Materials Fund, which Jimmy Rogers designed as a cost uh, to measure the cost of staying alive. By March of 2009, it went to 44. It went to 44%. Now, it came back a bit with when the good times returned with Mr. Bernanke pumping money into the system. People started feeling optimistic. They started buying more risky assets, and we saw it decline to about 30%. Then with the Greek uh, crisis, when it first arose, it went up to 44%, came back down. And yesterday, with yesterday's decline in the equity markets and gold surge to well over $1,700, we see uh, a 46.5% uh, number right now, which means that an ounce of gold will now buy 46.5% of a unit of the Rogers Raw Materials Fund, which includes oil, uh, base metals, food items, clothing items, virtually everything you need to stay alive. Yesterday, uh, while the Dow was tanking 635 points and the S&P and NASDAQ was doing even worse, major gold mining companies like Newmont went up in price very substantially. And this could be a turn because we have not seen the gold mining shares do nearly as well. It haven't, they have not kept up with the gold uh, bullion price. And I think that has a lot to do with uh, people not wanting to take on the risk of mining companies. You can just simply go out and buy ETFs now. And you position yourself, you hedge yourself against the tumultuous times by owning the metal itself um, in, in the case of the ETFs. And we have not seen the junior gold shares respond very well, but that is going to come. The major mining companies, the Newmonts, the Gold Corps, the Agneagle Eagles, uh, the Barracks, are not able to replace the gold they're producing nearly as rapidly as they're producing it. And what they're having to do is go down market to find the juniors. The juniors are much better at finding the gold. That's their mandate. That's why they're created, and they're willing to take on that risk, and the investors in those stocks are willing to have that. That's what they're buying those stocks for. So we see the juniors much more efficient in finding gold. And so where the real money is going to be made, I believe, are in these companies that are effectively finding gold and doing so inexpensively. So um, I, I'm really very, very optimistic about the junior mining companies. Uh, we're seeing, um, and, and the ones that I like most right now, there's a, a, a batch of new gold mining companies, new, new producers that also have an awful lot of uh, exploration potential. So these are companies that have cash flow now uh, that don't have to go out and sell more shares. They can uh, generate cash flow from their operations, and they're doing so very nicely, but they also have the growth potential. And these, as these companies build up bigger ounces, more ounces in the ground, we can expect them, I believe, to, uh, to be the targets of some of the major mining companies. And these major mining companies sometimes are paying six, seven, eight hundred dollars an ounce uh, for gold in the ground. I might just name a couple of them, and I want to 
get on to hear what Ted has to say about these uh, tumultuous markets. But if we look at uh, some of my favorites, uh, probably the favorite stock right now, one of my favorites anyway, would be Sand Gold. Trades on the Toronto Exchange under the symbol SGR, and it's uh, over-the-counter SGRCF. And the reason I like this so much is a couple of reasons, but primarily the thing that's really turned this stock around, I think, and this company around, uh, has been George Peary uh, joining the company as the chief operating officer, the CEO. And George was a senior operating guy with Placer Dome for many years. Uh, what we've seen since he's joined the company is the company is is really hitting its targets. It's it's producing, it's pulling ore from the uh, from the mines. It's producing uh, better than anticipated. But the real exciting news here is that Sandgold will be drilling 300,000 meters into some of the most prospective, really high-grade zones uh, that have been found in modern times in history. And George Peary told me on my radio show a few weeks back, he said, and, I, and this is a really a quote, he said, we will see an exponential, an exponential growth in the resource of sand gold. So sand gold is one that you might want to keep your eyes on. Certainly my readers uh, uh, are, are kept abreast of sand gold on a regular basis. There are other companies, too. I don't have the time to mention. If I keep going on, I won't have time for Ted, and I do have some sign-off things I need to, to mention as well. So, uh, Ted, uh, welcome. Hi, Jay. Thank you, and welcome to Vancouver. Well, thank you. It's really great, always great to be in Vancouver, my favorite city in North America. Uh, it is even more favorite than my city that I live in, New York City. But in any event, Ted, these are some really tumultuous markets. What are your thoughts, if you could give me two minutes? Sure. Uh, I, I was listening to you earlier, and, and I'm struck by the fact that the financial markets are volatile, trending downward. I think uh, most of the major indexes peaked in the spring, uh, and, and they have been volatile, but they've been volatile heading lower. Uh, gold, on the other hand, has also been volatile, uh, but it's been volatile heading higher. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think that's a very significant difference. Mm-hmm. As you and I have talked many times on your show, um, you know we're optimistic for the outlook of, uh, for gold. Uh, all the things that have happened recently, including the pseudo debt ceiling arrangement and all of those kinds of things, uh, just point to uh, uh, a continuation of the uptrend in gold prices. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm afraid you're right, and I say I'm afraid you're right because Ted. It, I have been a gold bug for a long time. It's not because, as some people think, we gold bugs want to see the world go to hell so we can get rich. No, not at all. What I've seen is the policymakers are engaged in Keynesian economics, which is printing more money and, and getting us into debt more and more. And, you know, it's just sort of common sense. Ultimately, you can't do that forever. And I think we're hitting the wall now. That's my opinion, Ted. I think that's good insight, though, because volatile heading down, volatile heading up, and gold is, is certainly the way, the place you want to be. Uh, unfortunately, not more time now. Ched, uh, my engineer is telling me I have one minute. I want to remind our subscribers, our, our subscribers, what I want, I want all you to be subscribers, our listeners, uh, that we do have a special offer for Chen Lin's newsletter, Roger Wiegand's newsletter, and mine as well. Call Claudio Bossi in New York at 718-457-1426 or go to miningstocks.com. Next week, our special guest will be Ian Gordon, who has long held that the huge amount of debt amassed by Western, by the Western world, led by the United States, will lead to a deflationary depression. And there's a lots of people we've had on this show that disagree with Ian, but Ian will present his ideas next week, and he, he has some pretty well-founded ideas, I believe, and historically, 
consistent as well with the views that Bob Hoy has. So don't, uh, we want to make sure that you're with us next week. In closing, I want to thank the staff at Voice America, starting with my senior producer, Tacey Trump, and Justin Jackman, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. Thanks to each of you for making this show the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. And until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real.